Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we will cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation, so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Alexios Arctos for his amazing sound engineering and editing work, and Raphael Crocs for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Before we rejoin Bruce, I just wanted to apologise for any words in our account over the past four episodes that may have been used to describe Japanese people that could be deemed offensive. It can be really hard relating historical facts sometimes because it was a very different time and people use terminology that by today's standards is unacceptable. However, I just wanted to issue a heartfelt apology if anyone was upset or offended by my coverage of this case, and I just want to reiterate that I have the utmost respect and admiration for Japan, its people and its culture. We've been on a long and interesting journey with Bruce Leniger as we've followed the moments his son James first started sharing his memories of being another person. We've joined Bruce on his search for proof and his startling realisation that everything his tiny son was saying was factual and correct. Finally, we heard Bruce acknowledge his own acceptance of reincarnation, which was confronting and life-changing for him. When this case is reported on, the focus is frequently only on James's memories, but I think this is a case that truly demonstrates the synchronicity that is part of reincarnation. That synchronicity was demonstrated in a particularly poignant account of James Houston's death that we haven't covered yet. Bruce and I intended to talk about it, but we didn't end up getting around to it in the interview, and it is a particularly moving account. Not only is it a very personal disclosure of what happened to James Houston, it is a very painful and emotional moment for an old man who'd been carrying the burden of what happened to him on that day so long ago. One of the men that Bruce spoke to was John Richardson. John was a flyer on one of the TBMs that went out on the mission that day. When Bruce spoke to John, he was suffering from Parkinson's disease and he was very frail, old and weak, but he was very keen to speak to Bruce. Bruce drove 300 miles to Texas to meet with the elderly man and it very quickly became clear to Bruce that he needed to speak about that day and to get some things off his chest. John asked Bruce to bring a picture of James Houston Jr. with him. When Bruce got there, they didn't engage in a lot of chit-chat, as John Richardson said he wanted to tell Bruce something before he got too tired. He appeared to be struggling with his emotions as he sat down in the living room with Bruce, and he started to speak. He said, this mission turned out to be a real hairy one. We'd gotten word about Chichijima and just how dangerous a place it was, but we were full of piss and vinegar in those days. When you're 19 years old, nothing scares you. I felt different after that day. As we started to form up for our bombing run, we saw the fighters going in ahead of us. All hell was breaking loose. We could see shells falling down into the sea below us. It looked like rain. The enemy began firing at us when we were well out of range. Very quickly, I began to see hundreds of puffs of ugly black smoke all around me as my plane and another plane in my section to my left and behind us were smothered in flak. A fourth plane startled me. It was a fighter. It was just off our left wing. He was firing his machine guns, strafing what was below us. We were no more than 30 yards apart when the pilot deliberately turned his head and looked at me. 
I caught his eyes and we connected with each other. No sooner had we connected than his plane was hit in the engine by what seemed like a fairly large shell. There was an instantaneous flash of flames that engulfed the plane. It did not disintegrate, but almost immediately it disappeared below me. At this point, John Richardson began to cry. Slowly, he regained his composure. He looked at Bruce and said, Mr Leniger, I have lived with that pilot's face as his eyes fixed on me every day since it happened. I never knew who he was. I was the last guy who ever saw him alive. I was the last person he saw before he was killed. His face has haunted me my entire life. He stammered as he related this and his hands trembled as he looked down at the photo of James Houston Jr. that he held. He said, I recognise his face in this photo. I could never forget it. Now I know who he was. He was also able to confirm that James Houston did indeed enter the water near a large rock at the mouth of Futamiko Harbour. After they spoke, Bruce helped John hang James Houston's photo in his den. John Richardson later spoke to James Houston's sister, Anne Houston Barron, and told her what he'd seen. She was grateful for the call because it gave her relief to know that James hadn't suffered. And so a circle of healing was complete. Bruce helped John Richardson by speaking to him and showing him Jane Houston's photo. And John Richardson was then able to help Anne Houston Barron to find peace and solace about her brother's death. Not long after these events, John Richardson himself passed away. If Bruce and Andrea hadn't started their quest, then Anne Houston Barron couldn't have found that peace and John Richardson wouldn't have had the chance to share the memories and find the information that he so desperately needed to come to terms with his memories and find some conclusion to his grief. If Bruce and Andrea hadn't risen to the challenge right at that moment, as Bruce mentioned in our last episode, a lot of the veterans would have passed away, and John Richardson would have been one of them. This case is peppered with moments of remarkable revelations and healing of people coming together again after decades apart to relive past memories and rekindle friendships. This case is bigger than just James's memories. It is proof of the transformative magic that happens when we react to other people with kindness and compassion. So let's rejoin Bruce as we discover the final facts about the family's journey and talk about endings, closure, peace and acceptance. And as always as happens in our cycle of life, new beginnings now getting near the sort of the end of it all in, in 2004 after you'd sort of told everybody about the real reasons behind it you all ended up going to the last reunion didn't you and there james met annie for the first time in the flesh right what was their meeting like it was quite touching actually it was always very gentle very uh we have a picture of i think james was standing next to annie there was a softness to it. You could just see love in the picture. Oh, that's um, beautiful. It was a restaurant we went to. They, it was just quite friendly. We were concerned about how he would react to it, what might happen. Also, you know, how he would react to all of these men. You know, that was where he recognized Bob Greenwalt by his voice. 
Yes, that was going to be my next question because yeah. that was quite a, an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well, he had no idea who was coming to the reunion other than that we were going. You know, there was no discussion that we were having with him about it other than we were going to go to San Antonio. You don't sit down with a six-year-old or uh, explain what's going on to that level. By that point, I think he was in first or second grade and he had some homework and we were trying to give him breaks where, you know, he was down with a bunch of adults that were 70 years older than him. Andrew was taking him up to the room for a break, and Andrew was take, getting a break, too, because we were also interviewed for some local affiliate or somebody in, in San Antonio. Bob Greenwald was coming down the elevator, and James had no idea I'd even ever spoken to Bob Greenwald. That was nothing I ever discussed with him. And uh, Bob looked down at him because he recognized James from TV. And then uh, there's another way he could have recognized James. And that was it was the only six year old that was at the reunion. Tw maybe 100 people there. You know? And uh, it was the only six year old. And he looked at me, and says, I bet you don't know who I am. And James looked at him up at him. And, you know, this is relayed to me by Andrea. So he looked up at him. He says, you're Bob Greenwald. And she said that Bob's jaw just almost dropped to the floor of the elevator. Yeah. And then when I heard about it, I was in, I inquired. I said, how did you know that was Mr. Greenwald? He said, I recognized his voice. And that was also the reunion where he spotted a five inch cannon that was at the display at the, it was called the Nimitz Museum in Fredericksburg, Texas. Chester Nimitz was from, I think from Fredericksburg, Texas. And that's why the museum was there. And he was walking along and there's other veterans there. He says, oh, the Natoma Bay had one of those on it. It was a five-inch cannon, five-inch wow. naval cannon. He knew where it actually was on the ship as well, didn't he? Yeah. I, and when I asked, well, where was it? He's on the back. Now, there's only a couple of photos that I've never been able to find that actually show where that cannon is. Now, there's descriptions, you know, there's drawings of it. There's no way that he could have known that, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, just incredulous. And then they, another thing was that one, one day he was kind of quizzical. I said, James, so what's on your mind? And he goes, why is everybody so old? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that was quite no. interesting as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, as to him, I suppose he was still seeing, he expected to see all the young men. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, who knows what, what he was thinking other than the way it was said. Why are they so old? And also at that reunion, you got to, to do your own peeling thing of putting a plaque out for Billy yeah. Peel and Lloyd Holton and Ruben Gorenson, what you talked about earlier. Yeah, and actually what wound up happening is, and that was something that was initiated by the association, and I worked with uh, a couple of the members of the association on it, was at the Nimitz Museum, they have like a memorial courtyard, and there's a bunch of plaques there. And what they were made by was the different associations and had a memorial courtyard where they the plaques did different things and said different things. But the one that we did was a tribute to the ship and to the men that served on it that were killed. Yeah. And it included all the names. There, there had been a plaque put earlier on, I think it was the Yorktown, Charleston, South Carolina, I think it's birth. And that plaque only has 18 names on it. The so this one completed it. And I dedicated my book. I also dedicated the uh, essay I submitted to the Bigelow Institute to the 21 men. This is a lot. I, I pledged 
to myself, to the association, and to the families that will never forget them. Oh, that's beautiful, Bruce. That's really lovely. And so, you know, I'm very humbled by all this. I'm sometimes humbled to tears by it because I'm not quite sure why the hell I got picked. Well, that's Uh, it, isn't it? What seems like originally probably quite a struggle and uh, and another thing to have to worry about at a time when life was very busy, it ended up becoming a bit of a gift in a way, didn't it really? I just say it's, uh, you have to surrender to it. I, I had to surrender to the reality. Had yeah. to surrender, you know, what, whether I went kicking and screaming the whole way. And I'm not afraid to be the only person in the room with a different opinion. And it's not because I want to be right. It's just because I have my opinion. And in this case, my opinion was dismantled, proven so startlingly wrong that it's humbling to me. Well, some, sometimes the universe gives us bigger gifts in a way, doesn't it? Like a bigger, bigger well, enlightenment. And I also have a belief that God doesn't put anything on you that you can't handle. If there is a, if there's a plan for the universe, if there's a plan for each of us, then it's part of the plan. There's some things I'm dealing with mentally right now and uh, some of it's unsettling but it's you got to move through it and I think the thing is too you're also still doing things though you've proven through your journey with James's story that you actually are someone who wants to make a difference and who wants to to right the wrongs of the world in a way and Mm -hmm. you're actually still doing that now with your latest venture which is starting your own business yeah well yeah helping people you know, I help people find good jobs and I help them find jobs that fit their interest and their passions for doing what they want to do. What's the name of your business? We can may as well oh, give it a bit it, of free advertising. It's uh, Accelerated Performance Resources. And I'm doing business as a member of an organization called Patrice and Associates. It's essentially a recruiting organization We're devoted to the hospitality industry, which has been a real challenging thing to be involved in over the last two or three years. That's what I do, coaching and stuff like that. Well, keep fighting the good fight, you know, and doing, being you. Yeah, my head is quite hard, uh, quite durable. It takes a bit of passion to start your own business. So I think you should be very proud of that. It's an achievement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mine. Oh, and did you say you were writing as well? Are you writing another book that you want any? Well, I started a book a long time ago. I don't know that I'll ever get to where I'm going to finish it, but I've started through, I've written poetry over time, been inspired recently to kind of renew that, just trying to capture a feeling and put it on paper. Well, you'll have to keep us in the loop. If you ever do, give us a yell and we'll we'll give you a shout out so that, uh, because the readers are always looking for an interesting book. Yeah, well, I'll make it a point to chase you around. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, glad to have the opportunity. Thank you. And I hope that this touches people out there or spurs their imagination on to chase whatever they want to chase. I'm sure it will, because I'll tell you one thing, every single time when you talk to someone, the first thing they say is, have you heard of the James Lineker case? I'm like, once or twice. Spent a little bit of time talking to the guy that bored me to tears talking about it. Not at all. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And I thank you so, so much for giving me so much of your time. I really appreciate it because uh, I think it's one of the most important cases we have. And I think it really needs to be preserved and protected because... It was the one that really opened people's eyes up to it and made them really see there's something to this because of the proof with it. Right. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, listen, I I wish you the very best of luck and good fortune in terms of what you're doing. Thank you for following your passion. That takes a lot of courage to be doing what you're doing. 
And that's the only way the world moves ahead. Somebody stands up and says, we're going to help move it that way. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's it. Thank you so much, Bruce. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I might have said farewell to Bruce at that point, having pinned this very busy man down for another two hours at that point and messing him around more than he deserved. But that really isn't the end of James Lenniger's story. To back things up a little, there was one interesting conversation that James had with Bruce and Andrea when he was watching a tape from a History Channel program about the war. The narrator said that the Corsairs in the old footage were shooting down Zeros, but James disagreed and said that the plane that was being shot down wasn't a Zero, it was a Tony. Bruce wound the tape back but couldn't see what James was talking about. To him, all of the planes looked like Zeros. Andrea asked why he called the plane a Tony and James replied that the fighters were named after boys and the bombers were named after girls. Bruce researched this fact and found it to be true. I found a Wikipedia site that backed up this information. Apparently at the time, code names were given to the planes of the Japanese Imperial Army and fighters were indeed called after male names and bombers, transports and reconnaissance planes were named after females. There was a small fighter plane that was a knockoff of a German ME-109 that was around in the Pacific conflict. Bruce even found a listing in the war diary of VC-81, James Houston's squadron, that they had found and destroyed one Tony in the air. The pilot who spotted the aircraft and shot it down was James Houston Jr. Also, we've spoken about Bob Greenwalt before and mentioned that he was important as being the man who provided the link to James Houston Jr. and how he came to fly Corsairs. I just wanted to note that Bob Greenwalt was more than that to James Houston. He was James's wingman, but most importantly, he was also his close friend. It was Bob Greenwalt that packed up James Houston's effects after his death and sent them back to the family, including the little model Corsair that Anne then sent on to James Leniger. He told Bruce that James Houston was a great pilot and a great friend. He also provided the poignant information that another pilot had been supposed to go to Natoma Bay, but he was transferred and James Houston took his place. James Houston was also supposed to rotate out on the 3rd of March, but he volunteered for that last mission over Chichijima and, of course, as we know, never returned. That 3rd Natoma Bay reunion that all of the Lenigas attended was a very special occasion. Bruce lobbied all of the veterans in the active members list to attend and he rounded up his own family members, including his mother-in-law Bobby, to come. Little James spent more time on the phone to Anne Houston Barron, convincing his sister to come. Now, this was no mean feat. Anne Houston Barron lived in California at the time, which was a 23-hour road trip from San Antonio, where the reunion was being held. And for the Lenigas, it was a six-hour drive, who lived in Lafayette. This was going to be a very special reunion. The truth for the Lenigas' interest was now out in the open, and James himself would be attending, and that in itself was quite a drawcard. But the Lenigas also wanted to make the reunion be a chance to really honour the men of the Natoma Bay. Bruce spent months making 21 blue loose-leaf binders devoted to each of the Natoma Bay dead. Each folder contained a biography of the person's life, war records and pictures. Andrea spent weeks making a haunting nine-minute ode to the ship and the dead. As we mentioned, Bruce was bothered by the fact that the men who weren't killed in action were missing from the monument that existed for the Natoma Bay. 
So together, Bruce and the veterans started a fundraiser and commissioned a new monument to the Natoma Bay, which was dedicated at the reunion and held all the names of all the men who served before being transported to its permanent home at the Nimitz Museum in Fredericksburg, Texas, which was about an hour and a half northwest of San Antonio. James, for his part, was fascinated by the veterans, and as Bruce said in his book, he would follow the men around like a puppy. Bruce noticed that he was studying the faces of the men around him and was attentive to the little habits and mannerisms. He listened into tidbits of conversation, and Bruce could see that he was actually looking for his friends in the faces of the old men. So it was a reunion of healing and closure as so many interested parties came together. The veterans, some of whom hadn't seen each other in decades, the family members of the men who'd not been included originally in the memorial, Anne Houston Barron and the Lenigas themselves all converged for this remarkable reunion that provided validation of all the men of the Natoma Bay and their sacrifice. And all of this came into being because one little boy had night terrors. It makes me wonder if James Houston Jr. had one final mission that he needed to go on before he could finally feel at peace himself. After the reunion, James settled and became like any other little boy, loving Star Wars, Spider-Man, Batman and video games. The violent nightmares had gone, but he still occasionally had a softer, gentler version of them, indicating that something of the trauma of James Houston still existed. At this point, Bruce was still being interviewed, but James firmly declared that he no longer wanted to talk about it. A Japanese production company contacted the Lenigas wanting to televise their story and they expressed a willingness to bring the whole family to Japan for filming. The family had mixed reactions to this concept. Bruce was keen, Andrea was hesitant, but when he convinced the Japanese company to have some sort of healing ceremony, a kind of ceremonial event, Andrea agreed to go. Anne Houston Barron was also asked to go, but she declined, simply asking Bruce to drop some flowers on her brother's final resting place. The trip to Chichijima was a trek in itself. The island didn't have an airfield and there were no florists there either, so the family bought flowers in Tokyo so that they could honour Anne Houston Barron's request and carried them onto the Ogasawara Maru for the 26-hour trip to the island. The crossing was rough and a typhoon passed nearby, making everybody, including the Japanese film crew, seasick. Andrea was the only one spared because she'd been taking seasickness pills. But finally, on the morning of their arrival, they got to see the island with its green mountains and beautiful harbour, and both Bruce and Andrea saw the welcome rock. Their ship passed right over the spot where James Houston's plane was. The family toured the island and passed many rusted cannons in the mountainous regions. Both Andrea and Bruce had the eerie thought that perhaps they were passing a cannon that had downed James Houston's plane. On the afternoon of September 4, they boarded a small boat called the Little George carrying the flowers that had shared their journey since Tokyo. Little George headed out into the harbour, still battered by the choppy waves from the aftermath of the typhoon. They reached the spot where James Houston's plane had entered the water and Bruce turned to his son, asking him, You okay, buddy? James replied that he was fine, but he couldn't bring himself to look at his father or the cameras and it was clear that he was emotional. Andrea pulled her son close and said softly, James Houston has been a part of your life for as long as you can remember and he will always be an important part of who you are, but it's time for you to let go. It's time to say goodbye. 
James nodded and put his head in his mother's lap and cried, deep, heart-wrenching sobs, as if all of the pent-up emotion he'd been carrying for the past six years was being released in a torrent. He cried for 15 minutes, and Bruce said in his book he seemed to be weeping for himself and for James Houston and for all of the world of woe he'd ever felt. Finally, slowly, he recovered and he picked up the bouquet. As the boat rocked, he pitched the flowers out into the water and with his face streaked in tears, said, Goodbye, James M. Houston. I'll never forget you. He stood up straight and saluted, then sank back into his mother's lap and cried again. On the way home again, the family stopped in San Francisco and James drew another picture. This was another ocean scene, but this time there were no bombers or small black dots of flak in the childish lines of the drawing, no war on burning planes. Instead, there was a Japanese boat on the water. The sea was filled with dolphins and fish that were swimming in the azure blue. A smiling whale leaped out of the water and peaceful planes flew lazily overhead in a sky dotted with clouds. And it was simply signed, To Mum from James. Bruce's book, Soul Survivor, is still available for purchase on Amazon and it really is a great book. There is nothing like reading the thoughts and words of a person who has lived through an extraordinary experience like this, and it would make an excellent gift for anyone who might be interested in reincarnation who hasn't heard of this case. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation, or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I would love to hear about them, and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you'd become a Patreon supporter. You can find me on Patreon under Reincarnation PLR. I don't do extra content, but your support helps me to keep pumping the episodes out faster and keeps me doing what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose.